episode 20 of Tech Swamp. Do not be alarmed. Your regular host, Alex, has not been replaced. She's living it up in the Mediterranean on a boat. We miss her, but now you get me. Your comms director at ACT, Ashley Dirk and Rixie. And of course, we still have your host and friendly neighborhood membership team. What's up, Brad? Why, hello there. And Caitlin, what's going on with you? You know, just membership chilling. Okay. This month, we have a slightly different vibe. We're talking about recess. As some of you may or may not know, August is a pretty grim month here in the swamp. It's hot, it's humid, and Congress heads home for a month-long recess. But why? We're sitting down with our executive director and special friend of the pod, Chelsea Thomas, for the answers. But first, we're going to quickly talk tech history and run through some DC headlines. August 9, 1991. 28 years ago, the first email from space was sent. Astronauts aboard the space shuttle Atlantis, mission STS-43, used an Apple Macintosh portable computer to send what is considered the first email from space. Using the Apple Link online service, Atlantis astronauts Shannon Lucid and James C. Ad- Adamson sent the following message. Hello, Earth. Greetings from the STS-43 crew. This is the first Apple link from space. Having a great time. Wish you were here. Send cryo in RCS. Hasta la vista, baby. We'll be back. And what this device looked like, you ask? Well, first of all, it was not backlit, which is tough in space. But the purpose of them using the device from space was to test features of the device, like cursor control that's used for the portable's built-in trackball with a modified aircraft control stick fitted with a thumbball at top and an optical mouse. The Apple Link software in the Macintosh was specially configured to connect to NASA's communication system, which allowed the shuttle to interface with Apple's proprietary network from space. The Macintosh Portable itself only had very minor modifications in order to operate from space. And that's all for tech history. That sound means it's time for What's Brewing in DC. Caitlin and Brad, what are some of the top tech headlines? So Congress is putting in some work this recess as they tackle autonomous vehicles. The House Energy and Commerce Committee and the Senate, Commer- the Senate Commerce, Science and Transportation staffs have been putting their heads together throughout the year and more recently over recess to find common ground on priorities and principles for new autonomous vehicle push this Congress. We'll be sure to keep you posted on all future self-driving car updates. The Federal Communications Commission opened a proceeding to better its broadband maps. In a press release circulated earlier this month, the FCC believes there's an immediate need to develop more granular broadband deployment data to meet this goal, and has created the new Digital Opportunity Data Collection. This proceeding will collect geospatial broadband coverage maps from fixed broadband internet service providers of areas where they make fixed services available and will adopt a process to collect public input on the accuracy of service providers' broadband maps, facilitated by a crowdsourcing portal that will gather input from consumers, as well as from state, local, and tribal governments. For more on this development, head over to our show notes. 
So last week, you may have seen your Instagram feed flooded with screenshot after screenshot of text posts warning users that Instagram was adopting a new privacy policy. This viral hoax detailed how photos and messages, quote, can be used in court cases and litigation against you, and everything you've ever posted becomes public from today. Even messages that have been deleted or photos not allowed. The note went on to insinuate that if a person posts the note, which ends stating Instagram does not have my permission to share photos or messages, that they somehow would be exempt from this rule. The screenshot was reposted on the Instagram accounts of celebrities, influences, but most notably Secretary of Energy Rick Perry. Now, the post has now been removed from his page, and Instagram cleared up the confusion by letting users know that they have no plans to issue a rule change concerning user content and litigation. But let this be a lesson to all of us to brush up on the permissions that you allow on all platforms. Before we sign off what's brewing, we're going to hit you with some 2020 election updates. The third round of debates will take place on September 12th and 13th in Houston, Texas. For the third and fourth debates, the Democratic National Committee upped the qualifying standards and candidates have until August 28th to make those qualifications. Right now, it's unclear if all of the candidates will qualify, but at least 10 of the 21 candidates are safe. Those include former VP Joe Biden, Senators Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Bernie Sanders, and Elizabeth Warren, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Julian Castro, Beto O'Rourke, and Andrew Yang. And in comings and goings, we have Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper, who now intends to run for Senate. He'll be dropping out, as did Governor Jay Inslee of Washington and Congressman Seth Moulton of Massachusetts. Former Congressman Joe Walsh, a Republican, threw his hat into the GOP race, primarying the incumbent president. We'll be sure to keep you posted on the latest 2020 updates through the 2020 general election. And before we leave what's brewing in BC, I want to give a quick plug for the work that our membership team has been doing along with the rest of the team. If you like what the membership team does on the pod, you can come and see us live and in person. We're doing events in West Virginia starting uh, September 5th, and then we will be in Providence, Rhode Island, September 12th and New York City on September 19 with more dates to come. So Caitlin will post some additional information in the show notes, but come and see us. And that's all for What's Brewing in DC. All right, today we're sitting down with our executive director and special friend of the pod, Chelsea Thomas, for a deep dive on why the swamp partially drains in August and what it's like to be a Hill staffer when the halls of Congress go quiet. I hope it wasn't spooky. Chelsea, (laughs) hi. Thanks for joining us. Oh, hi. So speaking of spooky, Congress is a weird, confusing place with lots of strange traditions, keepsakes, points of orders that predate widespread indoor plumbing. I know a fun fact about this. Ooh, go on, Caitlin. As everyone knows, I love a good fun fact, Um, but there are actually bathtubs. This has to do with indoor plumbing, by the way. Um, So there were bathtubs that were installed around 1860 during the expansion of the Capitol. And DC, as everyone knows, is known for our swampy summers. So legend has it that senators could be banished from the chamber if they were too smelly. 
But lawmakers, like most Americans at the time, they weren't just practicing bad hygiene because they're gross. They legitimately did not have indoor plumbing at home and they needed a place to wash up. So the architect of the Capitol ordered six marble bathtubs carved by hand in Italy to be installed in the Capitol basement. So there's three on the House side and three on the Senate side. And today only two tubs remain and they're both on the Senate side in a room that like has heating and cooling equipment and it's kind of pathetic when you think about what it used to be. And now, I mean, I'll post in the show notes. This room is gross. I love a marble bathtub. Baths are very important to me. <laughs> Moving on. Congress <laughs> has one tradition we still need an answer to. Mainly the five-week recess they take from August to the first week of September. We decided to do some research and we found some answers. Officially, the tradition of August recess began in 1970 with the Legislative Reorganization Act. That's right, Congress had to make it law so they could take a vacation. But if we're going to be real, Congress has come a long way in work hours from where it started. That's right. During Congress's early years, the position was not a full-time job. According to the U.S. Senate's website, they typically convened a session in December and adjourned in the spring, before the summer heat overwhelmed them and their small staff. So when the Senate got a new chamber in 1859, members were much more optimistic about the flashy, new, modern ventilation system. But that was a bust, and members found the conditions to be unbearable. The 1920s brought manufactured weather to the Senate chamber, but even that didn't help, forcing 20th century senators to find ways to escape the summer heat. So, by the mid-20th century, a more modern air conditioning system was able to bring relief to the members, who, I'm assuming at that point, were rolling around on the Senate floor like a bunch of seersucker-covered hot dogs at 7-Eleven. But over time, members of Congress found year-long sessions presented a whole new set of problems. So by the 1950s, the job of a U.S. Senator was full-time, and it was a year-round job, and there were almost no breaks built into the legislative calendar. For example, in 1963, the Senate met from January to December without a break longer than a three-day weekend. This is absolutely unheard of in today's Congress. And this is what led to the passage of the Legislative Reorganization Act and the first official August recess, which began on August 6th, 1971. Now that we laid out why Congress breaks for these five weeks in the summer, we've decided to capture a living, breathing former Senate staffer to talk to us about what actually goes down during recess. Chelsea, our former Senate staffer who is living and breathing, tell (laughs) us. living and breathing. So what do the members themselves do during these five weeks? So members themselves are able to take advantage of what they call a homework period instead of the more fun and fabulous recess terminology. Um, And they will travel back to their state or district, um, meet with constituents, have town halls, and hear about what their constituents really care about and their opinions on the legislation that they're considering. They also may take advantage of the time to travel internationally on what is called a CODEL or a congressional delegation where they have the opportunity to meet with uh, leaders from other countries and stakeholders who may also have views um, and thoughts about the legislation that Congress is currently considering. And what about the staffers? Is it just, you know, school's out for summer, 
blaring over the loudspeakers and everyone's throwing parties? Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of partying, uh, starting, <laughs> starting with the amazing pool parties that we have in the marble tubs down in the basement. <laughs> oh, man. I know. Um, so staffers have the opportunity to dig out um, from under the huge piles of paper that they have on their <laughs> desk. Uh, it is a time to sort of more deeply consider some of the work that they're doing. And they also have the opportunity to travel around their state or district and and meet with constituents. Um, When I worked on the Hill, I would travel back home. Um, I grew up in the state where my senator was from. And so I would have the opportunity to travel home and meet with constituents uh, who were interested in international trade, which is what I worked on. And we would be able to talk about the the trade agreements and the legislation that we were considering. Um, And it was a really good opportunity to hear what they have to say. And it served as sort of a reset. You can kind of get wound up um, in the mayhem of Washington, D.C. And so being able to travel home and have those conversations is a tremendously valuable part of recess. So you worked on international trade issues and you went on these international trips. What was your favorite staff del that you went on? I think that I had the opportunity to travel all around the world, um, which was an amazing opportunity, but it was not all glamor. Um, We (laughs) traveled sort of grueling pace. In fact, uh, one of the trips that I organized was deemed a death march by many of the people who (laughs) attended. And and so those of you at the table who work with me now might understand that feeling. Um, But absolutely not. Uh, But that same trip, I got to go to Australia, New Zealand, and Vietnam and talk about the Trans-Pacific Partnership and hear about what not just government uh, stakeholders had to say about it, but also people who might be directly affected on the ground in those countries um, had to say about the work that we were doing. So it was a really good opportunity. So if a staffer digs out from their pile of paper and sees their shadow. Does that mean they have five more weeks of recess? (laughs) Absolutely. That is the best possible sign a staffer can receive. (laughs) And with that, we're going to wrap up here. Chelsea, thanks for joining us on this episode of Tech Swamp. Thank you for having me. Also, hi, Mom. And now it's time for our random identifier. Chelsea, you're the guest, so you're up first. What do you have? You guys, I'm so excited about this. Uh, Long-time listeners may recall that on my last appearance, I talked about iZombie, uh, which closed out its run recently, and I cried real tears. (laughs) This is not an exaggeration. You can ask Ro. Um, (laughs) However, the good news is that Hulu is bringing an old fave back to my TV screen, so I won't be sad for too much longer. You guys, Designing Women is on Hulu. Um, And I don't know if any of you have watched it, but if you haven't, you absolutely must. So between Designing Women and the Veronica Mars reboot, it feels like Hulu has me completely dialed in. And so I got a subscription yesterday. (laughs) Wait, I didn't know it was that fresh. (laughs) Oh, it's very fresh. Um, So that's what I got. Well, that's bad timing. Chrissy Teigen just came out with a deal with Hulu that it's like six months for half off if you like sign up through Hulu slash Chrissy's. I'm sorry um, to tell you that. Man. Cancel. Well, <laughs> <just> cancel. 
<laughs> I got, yeah. Yeah. Yep. No, I don't want them to ban me or like like suss out that I'm I'm being yeah. shady. I'm I'm happy to pay for this content. Okay. You guys, the sugar bakers are worth it. <laughs> well, hopefully Hulu is listening to this podcast and this mention will gift you three free months of their service, <laughs> now including live sports. Yeah. Hashtag, yeah. Hashtag <laughs> save the Shively Volvo. <laughs> okay, Caitlin, what's on your mind this week? So I love crime. Um, I'm really interested by crime. Um, and I'm excited to announce that there has been a crime committed in space. Um, and this is not a crime... like. No one got hurt. Like, everything's okay. I don't want to, like, act like I'm being insensitive to victims. It's not victimless. Yeah. It's not a victimless crime. It just... It's exciting more than anything. (laughs) So, uh, Annie McLean, one of NASA's top astronauts, uh, allegedly accessed her wife's bank account multiple times from a NASA computer while she was in space for six months. Um... Apparently, like, allegedly she did this. It's not been confirmed whether or not. Apparently, she had been going through a separation with her partner, and then she was trying to access the account but was using an old password. Apparently, it wasn't malicious. The victim is claiming that it was. Either way, I'm so... I don't want to say excited. I'm so interested to see how this crime will play out. Because, like, where's the jurist... Like, who has jurisdiction over a crime in space... I don't know space things. Like, I don't watch Star Wars. I don't know anything about, like, stuff like that. So It's I don't... 100% accurate. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if if it's going to take that kind of course, you know. But I either that, you know. Well, I'm excited to see where this goes. They all, you know what they say. In space, no one can hear you hack your partner's bank account. I've heard that. Yeah. yeah. Very <laughs> common expression. Yeah. Very yeah. common. They can't hear yeah. it, but apparently they can see it and then get mad about it. <laughs> Hasta la vista. <laughs> I'm sure they also were using the uh, Apple modulator computer yes. from the email. Brad, what's going on with you? All right. We're going to go back to uh, where I started with random identifiers and go with a musical act. And this one has kind of a fun name. It is Joe Hurtler and the Rainbow Seekers. They, uh, they are a local Michigan band that has started to tour around the country. Very, very good. Post-Motown funk music is what they qualify themselves as. But it's just a great time. Honestly, I've seen them dress up as Power Rangers for the entire show and Ooh. play the theme song as the encore. <laughs> it's just a, a great party. So they left the stage and then came back wearing the costumes or they were wearing the costumes the whole the time? The entire time. That's great. That's yeah. commitment. <laughs> and they'll, commitment. Play, they'll play like the Pokemon theme song and stuff. They, they play some pretty fun stuff in addition to um, a lot of their wonderful original tunes. <laughs> Who's opening? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I've played a couple shows with these guys before mm-hmm. too so I've I've seen them countless times. Probably as much as I've seen the Dave Matthews band. You are a committed fan. Yeah. When I latch on, it's all over. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> you like Dave Matthews? <laughs> Perhaps yeah. you've heard. They all have. right. Well, I will wrap up with my random identifier. Um, there is an extended flamethrower cinematic universe happening in theaters right now. Um, flamethrowers are having a moment. <laughs> They're appearing in two of the biggest summer blockbusters, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Quentin Tarantino's ninth film, 
and the Fast and Furious spinoff of Two Bald Men You Just Love to See Together, uh, The Rock and Jason Statham in Hobbs and Shaw. So flamethrowers end up being, you know, playing significant roles in both of these movies. And it just struck me as, is this our weapon of the moment <laughs> that we're going to use flamethrowers now? Was it Elon Musk's flamethrower? Well, in Hobbs and Shaw, it, it was a flamethrower that belonged to a shady tech collective. Mm. Oh. So draw your own mm. conclusions there. We all know how I feel about the musk, so yeah. I'll think what I want. <laughs> there was no brand name on the side, but... What is the name of his... Is boring it? Company. A boring Company. Boring Company. There was also a video of a flamethrower attached to a drone recently. It yes. was terrifying. No! Yes. <laughs> I did see that. You guys, if I see a flamethrower on one of those MIT robots, oh, I absolutely maybe will, that's like, the solution to the feral hog problem. A twerking dog robot with a flamethrower. <laughs> we have solved the world's problems. That seems very practical. Yeah, yeah, very, yeah that is safe for the children. <laughs> yeah, hottest toy this Christmas. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the flamethrower might be at the rate we're going, but anyway, <laughs> practice safety, always have a fire extinguisher nearby, and never attempt anything you see in a movie. <laughs> okay, guys, that's it for Tech Swamp. If you heard anything on here that piqued your interest, head over to our website and make your way to the podcast section. We'll have notes on today's episode that include links to all the good stuff. And of course, we want to give a shout out to Brad Goodall, who composed our podcast, Awesome Music. Thank you, Brad. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher. And of course, we would love a rate and review. Five stars only, please. (laughs) And that's all for today, folks. Bye. Bye.